Welcome to the 71st episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about long-term metric storage. Woohoo, metrics! My favorite. Metrics are fun. They're kind of our bread and butter in, in some ways, but they haven't always been. And before we dive into the specifics of what we're talking about here today, I wanted to, to quickly kind of sum up where we've come from in the metric space. You know, I want to admit that Brendan introduced me to metrics. I blame him. What's this cool Grafana thing? Yeah, Grafana and Graphite kind of brought the world into the modern metric space. But before that, there was a little tool called RRD for the Round Robin database. And it was, it was really amazing for what it did, but it was overly complicated and it was very particular in how you set it up. When you created the database file, you had to specify what kind of metrics that were in them, if they were gauges or counters, if you wanted averages or sums or how you wanted to handle missing data points. And at creation time, the database was fixed. And I didn't know many people who ever plumbed the depths of RRD tool. It was handy. It was all over the place. Um, MRTG was a was a popular open source package that people use for monitoring network links, among other things. And it was the de facto thing. I mean, you, you looked on the internet and everybody had MRTG graphs up, but it wasn't flexible and it wasn't dynamic enough. So a couple yeah, years later. It was later, definitely something you set up. You got your metrics and your network mostly doesn't change. The things you're monitoring from a from a service mostly didn't change. But it was too rigid to really be the tool we needed for a more dynamic environment. And Graphite came onto the scene. And Graphite had a couple of notable pieces to it that you sent it data and you didn't have to send it data in specified chunks. With RRD, you had to say, my time window is, say, 15 seconds. And you're going to give it data every 15 seconds. Otherwise, you had problems. Graphite, you said, my resolution is 15 seconds or a minute or whatever it was. And you just sort of poured metrics into it. And if you didn't give it a metric for that time slot, it, okay, it kept on going. And if you gave it two metrics for time slot, the last write would win. And so if you, if you needed to backfill data, if you needed to do all kinds of things, it was so much more flexible. And because of the way the server protocol was set up, it would accept any metric value or any metric name you gave it and then start associating values with it. And it would fill up databases on disk and just start going. So you didn't have to pre-plan any of your any of your metrics, you just start sending things in. And as anybody who's worked in this field for a while can tell you, that is both a blessing and a curse. That you can get all the metric data in, but you also get all the metric data in. Graphite was really where we were introduced to the ability to query and relate and interrelate data from different sources, from different streams, sort of ad hoc. Uh, with RRD tool... Querying RRD tool is fun. Um, do you speak reverse Polish notation, Brendan? I try not to. I know your your calculator does, but... <laughs> yeah, I try not to myself. <laughs> and the client libraries were never never pleasant. Um, it was... Mostly with RRD tool, you had a cron job that would run a set list of queries, generate graphs, and you loaded up a web page that showed you those pre-generated graphs every five minutes. And with with Graphite, you had you first had the power of, okay, I can do some ad hoc queries and relate the load of my CPU to the packets coming in versus the behavior of an application. 
And you also could correlate between hosts, which was interesting and unique. So instead of just putting multiple lines on the graph, you actually could say, what is the sum or what is the derivative or what is the whatever of a pool of machines or a pool of CPUs instead of just drawing all those CPUs on, on the screen at the same time? Remember, everyone, sum your derivatives, don't derive your sums. Yes. In the metric space at this point, in terms of open source tools, Prometheus has effectively won the, the current new modern shiny standard pattern. It is open source. It is fast. It is easy to work with in terms of the text exporter format is human readable, human understandable, easy to debug, most importantly, and it's simple. It, it's not a JSON object full of all kinds of values. It is a human readable line format, much like the graphite line format was, that just consisted of key value pairs and a timestamp for graphite. And Prometheus is just a, a name, or it's a key value pair, and then the timestamp is based on when you scraped it. So it's simple, it's straightforward, and it's effectively one. But Prometheus has design decisions that are based around operational metrics. It's based around, are we in business right now? Is the application running? Is everything on fire or not? It's not designed for long-term analysis for marketing, for legal, for business business analysts doing year-over-year trending kind of stuff. It's not built for that. It's built for operational stuff. It's built for the here and now. Prometheus definitely wins on the simple front because it is so simple to operate. And there definitely is a beauty in simplicity. And when you can remove a lot of the complications and complexity and have something that's very simple, there's there's true bits of magic in that. And the disaster recovery scenario that the Prometheus folks uh, advertise is which is really true and shows its simplicity, all you need to do is bring up a VM with Prometheus on it and point it at your application. And in literally seconds, you know exactly how your application is behaving. You have all the metrics from your sources and you can start to diagnose what does my fleet look like right now. So operationally, you're back in, you're back in business, but in terms of long-term storage, in terms of the business analytics metrics, you don't really have that. And RRD was effectively a ring buffer written to disk. It was it was a very tight piece of code, but it was written back in a day when you had tens of network interfaces on a switch, or you had tens of metrics on hundreds of servers. And so if you had a few thousand things, all you, all you would do is just stop writing to them and back them up as you would back up any other database. And then you could restore it if you wanted to. And you could set your retention early and you'd say, I want three years of this metric. And at three years, even if you have 10,000 metrics, that's not a lot of disk space. Graphite was very similar. You had the ability to set um, roll-off patterns. So I'm going to keep one-minute one resolution data for a month. And then I'm going to downsample to five-minute resolution data for the next 12 months or whatever it was. And again, these were just files on disk. You just backed them up. And people generally didn't have crazy, crazy counts of metrics. They had hundreds of thousands, maybe. And once you got... works really well in that, in that area. There's a certain range where graphite scales really beautifully and where it was clearly designed to, scale, to, to be and to live and to be happy. And then there comes a point where all of a sudden scaling it becomes very difficult. And that's in the sense well, that's in cardinality. Once you have either dynamic hosts because of a cloud environment or Kubernetes or what have you, 
or you just have people who are instrumenting code with histograms or very large sets of metric data because they have a lot of things they're, they're worried about. They, they've, they've, they've come to you and they've, they've realized the power of metrics and they've realized why this makes their life easier and better. And they say, we're going to instrument all the things. And suddenly you don't have 100,000 metrics. You have 50 million metrics. And what do you do? And how do you back this up? And how do you store this long term? And the Prometheus answer out of out of the box for Prometheus is you don't, because Prometheus is an operational tool. It's a, are we alive right now? Is the app healthy right now? You look back over recent data, but under Prometheus's design, older data is exponentially less valuable the older it is. It's not built that way. I really think of Graphite as a much more general tool. It can be scaled and stretched in different ways. It does more things than Prometheus does less well. I think Prometheus does a smaller subset of things, but in the in the idea of keep it simple stupid, it does a really focused job very well where graphite does a very broad job and some places not so well. Thankfully, the authors of Prometheus recognized this deficiency and left a code point basically in in Prometheus that said, if you want to write your, your metrics data out somewhere else, here's how you do it. <laughs> and it enabled a whole community of people to say, how would we best store this data? How do we best put it somewhere that it is cheap to operate on? It is relatively stable. It's durable. All those, those pieces, we can still query it. And we're not keeping it live on the Prometheus servers. If you think about it, you really want to have really high speed, high capacity SSDs on your Prometheus servers to handle the high write volume you do. Yeah, I use those even on my graphite servers. But if you're trying to keep 12 months, 24 months, 10 years of data on one of those servers, you're paying an extraordinary amount for enough SSDs to handle keeping that backlog on disk, plus all the storage headaches, plus all the Prometheus trying to make Prometheus handle something it was explicitly not designed to do. And this is where you turn to the long-term metric storage plugins. And I'm going to, this is is a place where Jack knows a lot more about this than I do. I'm going to let Jack kind of take over for most of the rest of this episode. Oh, Prometheus. So yeah, the beauty and the curse of Prometheus is that the Prometheus authors made some very pointed decisions about about its design, and they chose to focus on very explicit operational level aspects. Are you in business today? Sort of things, and they knew that things like long term storage of metrics was was a need, a desire, a a a valid question to ask, valid data to have, and their uh, response to that was to to build a remote write endpoint in Prometheus, and it's had several version slash iterations uh, so that there was an API to get data out of Prometheus in a relatively reasonable format and do so generically so you could put it into Graphite or OpenTSDB or InfluxDB or you name it, we can figure out a way to get Prometheus data into that uh, into that TSDB. So Prometheus effectively you know, kicked the ball for long-term storage you to a different set of solutions. And some people really like that, and some people really don't. I've seen people have six months, 12 months of data on a Prometheus server. It can be done. It does work. But you've got to pay for the 
you've you got to pay for the SSDs or, or disks to keep that data around. And there's no tools to actually really operate on the TSDB itself, um, really until very recently. So if you had to maintain the data, backfill it, back it up, those kinds of operations, you were kind of left struggling for a while. And unlike a storage platform like Elasticsearch, Prometheus doesn't have self-healing. It doesn't have replication. It doesn't have... Because, again, it's, it's an operational tool. So If your Prometheus is down, then go look at the duplicate you've also got set up. But it doesn't automatically load balance between them. So if you're not looking at the right one all the time, you're going to get gaps in your data. And you, you have to do a bunch of interesting expressions to make sure you're, you're choosing between whichever data set has better data automatically all the time. It, it gets ugly That's a pretty pain fast. in the butt. And I've seen a couple of different long-term metric storage, kind of the, the remote write backends come and go in terms of somebody started working on it and then realized the problem was either a lot harder than they thought it was, or their employer was like, yeah, this is not the job we're paying you to do. So as cool as that is, I need you to get back to work on your real job. And they didn't have time to really put... So yeah, you need, a, you need another time series database of some variety to deal with the data. And please quit writing them. They're not simple projects. I'm going to stick a link into the show notes that if you're thinking of writing one, go look at this list first. It's a very long, exhaustive list. Um, Please quit writing TSDBs. It's on Misframe, and it started in 2016, and the person's been keeping it updated for the past couple of years. And it, it is a fairly... All the ones that I was looking for, I see on the list. Links to the project page, links to why it's good or bad, links to kind of notes about them. So look over that first, and if you really feel that you're that something you're trying to do is not covered by those solutions, maybe. But there's a lot of good solutions out there now. Most, if not all, except for for Thanos, uh, Prometheus long-term metric storage solutions depend on Prometheus's remote write API. You've got to get the data out of the Prometheus server somehow. And a big problem I've had is the remote write APIs just weren't super reliable. Prometheus's multi-threaded scraping data ingestion pipeline is well-tested, is incredibly robust. It's had lots of eyes on it. You have to use this pipeline at high high input, high velocity, if you use Prometheus at all. I mean, it's, it's kind of how it works. So Prometheus' ingestion pipeline is, quite frankly, pretty badass. It's remote write pipeline. I've had a lot of issues where it just can't keep up with the volume of data it needs to it needs to write out. In Prometheus 2.8, which was released in March of this year, the Prometheus authors finally added wall support for the remote write API. What's a wall? Um, write ahead log. It is a log of the data that you've got to process, do something with, and in this case. You write the data that you need to write out the remote uh, write APIs to the wall, and then you can check off each data point as you actually are successfully able to admit it through the remote write APIs so you don't lose data points or enter some sort of failure mode. Um, I refer to these a lot as, as kind of Kafka-like semantics because a lot of people are familiar with the benefits that Kafka can bring um, as a pipeline, and it's that pipeline, it's that transportation mechanism with those guarantees that we've kind of missed from from these solutions, and therefore the data on the remote storage or the, the long-term storage side of the equation wasn't always as 
It wasn't always as good as the uh, Prometheus data, with lots of gaps and missing bits. How was the query side of that? I remember early on, at least, that the, the remote query API also wasn't super robust, and people were having problems getting it to work reliably. But that was a long time ago now. That was in either 1x or pre-1x days of Prometheus. Yeah, that was a while ago. The remote read APIs work fairly robustly, and I've seen them used in several different solutions. Um, having Prometheus servers query other Prometheus servers sort of fan out a query for uh, weird scaling scenarios, that actually works really well. It's far too complicated to set up, but it does work well. <laughs> yes. Having been there and gotten that t-shirt. Having set up and run a giant Prometheus hash mod cluster, I do not recommend scaling that way. So you mentioned that the Thanos storage is different. And first off, what is Thanos and how is it different? So yeah, most solutions, all solutions, dependent on the remote write API, which I've had issues with until ish recently. Thanos, what really got my attention was not only was it started by some of the same folks that had worked on the Prometheus TSDB version 2, the current version of the database, uh, they used that the format of their data, that database as a design point, as a critical bit of technology that makes Thanos work and be simple and be happy. And that critical bit was that every two hours, Prometheus will cut a TSDB block on disk. And that block has every time series for the last two hours or for the current two-hour period encoded in that block. That block is mostly immutable. There's no real changing you can do to it once it's cut and written on disk. It can be compacted so you could take like three two-hour blocks and make a six-hour block, for example. But otherwise, the blocks are fairly immutable. So the idea behind Thanos is you can run a sidecar right beside your Prometheus that's actively scraping, and it picks up those blocks as they're cut and laid down on disk and uploads them into S3 or GCS, some object storage, uh, for long-term reliable storage of that data. And that turned out to be super simple and super powerful. And even if there's errors writing to S3 or your Prometheus instance gets rebooted or something, you can try again to re-upload that block. And if you fail to upload that block, but you succeed, you know, a couple tries later, you don't lose any data on the edge cases. And not to mention the fact that S3 or GCS storage is far cheaper than the, the SSDs you have attached to your running instances. So it is dramatically, it's an order of magnitude less expensive to keep long-term data on S3 than it is to keep it in your VM. And since you only pay for what you use versus you need to keep you know, five terabytes of SSD drive provisioned, um, it's much more efficient. In fact, there have definitely been a lot of tendencies of we finally have a solution where we can keep Prometheus data, metric data, forever. It's cheap. And I don't always agree with that. I think that's a slippery slope to go down. But it is a cheap and reliable way to store data. That Even has to, TSDB data. That has to be in part because you've been burned quite badly by the, oh, graphite's really easy and cheap. We'll just keep everything on graphite forever mentality. And once you get a lot of data, a lot of data to the point that you need to set some boundaries of how much you want to keep, you also have the issue of you have too much data to really make good decisions about 
what parts are important. Not to mention the fact that two years from now, when you're trying to make a decision about do we keep this or that, this piece or that piece, the teams that wrote the data are probably not comprised of the people that were on the teams when the data was written. The teams may not even exist anymore. The The project may have been handed to some other team, and those members of the team are saying, I don't really know why this data is important or why it was captured in the first place. And it might be important, so we can't just throw it away, but it's going to take time to spool up and figure out exactly which pieces of this we need or don't need or whatever. Time a team usually doesn't have. So Thanos doesn't really give us a great solution as far as filtering what metrics we keep, although I made that bug report. Um But it does implement retention policy, so you can keep raw data for six months, for example, and downsample data for two years-ish, for example. But part of Thanos and why I was initially attracted to it is it really follows a Unix philosophy of, of life. There are discrete components. You can use those components to build a solution that meets your business needs. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not. It doesn't force you to build clusters of things you don't need. So if you just need the ability to have a single query endpoint that queries all your Prometheus servers, you can do that. If you need to stack that with long-term storage, you can do that. And so that's one of the things that really, really got my attention of, that this could be a, a really reasonable solution that has some of the same keep-it-simple-stupid properties that Prometheus did. I love the idea that everything is just a file somewhere. It's either a file on disk in your VM or it's a file in your object store. Everything is accessed via HTTP range requests. So it's relatively easy to say, hey, I want to look at this data later. I have curl on my machine and I can authenticate. So now I can look at the data. I don't need a complicated client library. I don't need a complicated anything else. There's no cluster state to debug. There are no network protocols that are strange or esoteric or firewall rules that have to be added or opened. All of the pieces are are pieces that your security team is going to know and understand on how do we grant access to a bucket? How do we change authentication on a bucket? How do we do these other pieces? What does the HTTP portions of this look like? And all the traffic is very easily inspectable so you can see what goes wrong, how it goes wrong. And you don't need to be an expert in anything in terms of the out from the outside to understand why the pieces fit together. The expertise all comes into the actual data and that's the best place to spend your time and your, and your knowledge as a, as a self-hosted option. And when Thanos moves TSDB blocks around, it is literally just copying the Prometheus TSDB blocks around. There's a couple extra pieces of metadata, but it's not doing anything magical or complex. It's just simply moving that, that block of data around, which is a handful of files, or more than a handful of files, but there you have it. The same aspects that make Prometheus's TSDB easy and efficient access on disk work with HTTP range requests. Thanos also wraps all of its endpoints, more or less, with uh, the same store API, as they call it. So each part of Thanos has the same API you work with. So you have a sidecar component which allows Thanos to query your local Prometheus VM with a store API and it also uploads TSDB blocks to object storage if you have that configured. There's a store component that wraps that store API around an object storage bucket. There's a compact component which more or less does maintenance activities uh, on the TSDB data in the storage 
object in the storage bucket. Maintenance that would usually be done at the local Prometheus server now needs to be done on the bucket. So that's what Compact does. There's a repair component for doing some TSDB repair work. Turns out your things get corrupt and you might need some tools. Gasp. There is a query component, which is totally stateless, which discovers your store API endpoints from the store component or the sidecar component, figures out how to route queries between these different endpoints to efficiently route queries and get data back. It's not as fast as a Prometheus VM. It's not memory mapped IO. It's HTTP range requests. But oddly enough, it's usually not more than twice as slow. In fact, it's, you know, like 20 to 50% more time than than using a local Prometheus machine. And even with large scales of data, it's been surprisingly performant. In my initial testing, I'm seeing about a 10 to 20% drop in performance by using Thanos instead of using the, the raw Prometheus data. And I am a heavy user of recording rules, and I try to be very a very good citizen of keeping my data selection small for my dashboards. I don't want my dashboard load times to be really large. So I try to have as many of my dashboard expressions recorded, even if I don't really need it for complexity, just to make the retrieval of data sets smaller. So I'm, I'm pulling two time series or four time series instead of 300 time series when I'm doing a comparison or a sum or whatever it is. And that does make things a lot faster for my both my um, my regular loads as well as my Thanos loads. But I'm only seeing about a 10 to 20% drop in performance, which is honestly within the the realm of, of human use like you can't tell you can't tell which panels on the dashboards i've i've switched to thanos and which have which haven't yay one of the things that thanos attempts to solve is is downsampled data which if you've listened to me rant about time series database before no can be a double-edged sword well downsampled data has always been tricky um from rd to graphite it was interesting a lot of people don't understand the the nuances of how the bucket sizing works when you use downsampled data, and they would ask why their data changed at the downsampling window. So if you're keeping, you know, one minute data for twelve hours and you're keeping five minute data for thirty days, they'd say, well, at, at hour thirteen everything's different. That's like, yeah, because it's you're holding it in a weird way, and downsampling was never quite Graphite's strongest suit. I mean, it worked. No. But it was always kind of weird. Um, and there are other backends that make different trade-offs. Like if you were using Lucene or like Elasticsearch as your metrics backend, which Elastic would love you to do, um, they are much denser on disk. They take a lot more space on disk. But because they have all the raw data, you can do all kinds of crazy things at all times. But it's not downsampled. And we're trying to save space here. There's nothing like raw data. If you want to make sure that you can display a graph properly and do some good math on it, there's nothing like raw data. When you get into situations where you want long-term storage, you're probably interested in saying or being able to have an outage today, or if you experienced an outage last week, you might want to compare that outage with the last time you experienced an outage a couple months ago. Or if you have a peak in sales, a peak in, in site traffic throughout the year, Perhaps you want to be able to compare peak to peak and see how things perform. And with Prometheus natively only keeping, you know, 15 to 30 days, you probably, the last event that you want to look at is probably rolled off. So with Thanos, 
with looking at more data, when you start to look at months of data or even years of data, having something that supports downsampling is going to be a major win as far as being able to process that data in a sane amount of time. And because there's no way you can display that data at full resolution anyway. The trick with downsampling is that you want to make sure that whatever product or vendor you're using does downsampling sanely. And by sanely, I mean that vendor is going to, say, take five minutes of data or an hour of data and build a sort of mini statistical model of that data, like count the number of data points in the the downsampled sample, the sum of the, of all those data points, perhaps max and min, uh, perhaps standard deviation. This allows you to calculate an average and select the right data depending on the question you're asking. Um, there's several vendors out there that do this, and Thanos actually does this as well, which is another reason I became really interested in Thanos, because they realize that correctly downsampling data can be a interesting challenge by itself. And as an important side note, if you are looking at using a, a an external vendor to handle your metrics, which is a perfectly reasonable decision in many you should. cases, you should be very careful to look at how they do their math. How do they handle the mathematical side of all the operations they do and how they handle their downsampling and how they handle all of these pieces? Because if they're not accurate with their assumptions on how the model works, your data is effectively useless. I mean, you can get you can kind of get a ballpark out you of it here and there. You can get data, and you can get fun squiggly lines that look like good data. But as we talked about last week, if your histogram boundary bu- bucket boundaries are are not sized well, you're looking at 100, 200, 300% error in your data, and that's not acceptable. That's not fun. So make sure that as you're evaluating vendors, you're not just evaluating price and how shiny the UI is and how acceptable it is to various management teams look at their math and ask them the hard questions get get a sales engineer on the phone and ask them how and why they implement the mathematical models they do so do you support histograms and what method do you use to do dynamic bucketing of those histograms if those features are missing evaluate some more vendors yeah we have found two so far that we are very comfortable with in terms of the math i'm not sure we want to actually name them aloud here but Please do your homework. Because as we ranted a bit about last episode, Prometheus's histograms are not the bread and butter that we all hoped they would be. And unfortunately, because Prometheus represents the histograms on, in the client side, there's no real way to take a Prometheus histogram and port it to a solution that does histograms better. Most other solutions, uh, instead of representing the histogram locally, just want you to send... Uh, data points for each event to the time series database. Uh, much like StatsD, for example, you would send you know, a few hundred thousand events per second at a timer type StatsD data point, and then every minute StatsD would emit some summary metrics on that. Uh, what a lot of vendors are doing is taking your data at high velocity and every minute or every five minutes generating a, a histogram of that data, which if you can get histograms generated in that fashion... That's usually pretty good. What most vendors do, another interesting thing to look for as far as vendors, is most vendors will accept 
metrics via an HTTP API and you can post many metrics at the same time. So what you're able to do is every time somebody hits your website, you can send a latency value to your TSDB. And what happens is a big pile of those latency measurements get batched into one HTTP put that goes toward the same metric, builds the same histogram. And that that solves a world of problems. So while I really like Thanos as an open source long-term storage solution for Prometheus cluster solution for Prometheus. I think Thanos has an awful lot to offer us in the future. It is kind of rough around the edges at this point in time. And there there are lots of people actively submitting PRs uh, to the point that the Thanos developers can't always keep up with the PRs, which is probably a good sign for a project. Once you come to a certain scale having folks in-house that can run your metric system is going to be a lot cheaper no matter how shiny that that external software a service as a software as a service vendor is on the other hand a SaaS vendor can offer an awful lot of expertise and value to a company especially as a startup or a mid-sized company that's looking to focus on what they're actually good at instead of having to re-implement their own monitoring. So there are definitely some some trade-offs involved in, in where you go. And as always, do evaluate vendors. No matter, no matter what your size is, if you think that you are too small to run it in-house because there's, there's no way running it in-house is cheaper, or you think that you're too large to pay for a vendor because running, it, running pays you go will always be more expensive, take a minute to check your assumptions and go back and look at the current field. Every six months to 12 months, I try to go through all the things that I use and look for vendors that can do it at either my cost or close to my cost. Because if they can, it frees me up from doing it myself, and I can go work, work on other new and interesting problems. Don't assume that the market, market is static around you. It is always fluctuating. There's always differences, and there's always new cost models that are being introduced as things move around. You're never going to get around the basics of what does storage cost, what does network transit cost. There's a lot of other assumptions that get invalidated, and it's always good to revisit them and to swallow your pride and say, hey, I built this cool thing. I'm going to look at a vendor, or I love this vendor, but honestly, could my team just run it ourselves cheaper? I like talking to vendors sometimes because occasionally I learn something new. I learned a new uh, trick as far as abnormally uh, detection um, from a vendor conversation not too long ago, and wasn't obscure knowledge or something strange. It was just a slightly different technique in how they were looking at the data and comparing the data to previous levels in the system. And it was quite simple. And I had never really thought about it in that way. And that's a simple technique that I was able to take home and validate and use in my own system. I can smell another episode cooking right there. Mm, Yes, indeed. But the things I look for when I'm interviewing for a job or interviewing a vendor is, do I learn something? And if the vendor can show me something new or a new way to look at how they can handle my data or teach me something that I would learn and use day-to-day working for this person, that's always leads me to, to really want to work with those people. I really enjoy working with with smart folks that are able to do that kind of data sharing amongst themselves. And that really creates a very powerful work environment. In fact, I 
really want to do an episode on anomaly detection with Prometheus, but I need to do my homework first. I agree. I want that as well. <laughs> I I remember using the Holtwinter's forecast models in Graphite a fair amount, and I didn't get it perfect, but I, I got it well enough to send me actionable alerts with reasonable confidence. And I and Holt tried... Winters exists in Prometheus now, but there's usually not enough uh, past data with you know 15 or 30 days of data only to give the Holt Winters model enough data to make a reliable forecast. So that's is not been as popular with Prometheus. And there's other methods by using you know standard distribution models, which my data is almost never distributed in a standard method. Um, to do standard deviation based modeling or whatever, but there's a number of ways you can handle, you can hold the math correctly and you can get actionable anomaly detection, or this is abnormal detection at least to, to let you sleep a little better at night with, with fewer alerts, but better alerts. And yeah, I think that's, that's going to come up pretty soon, but it does require a little bit of pre-planning on our part for, for the homework side of things. Please take the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for the 71st episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I am Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely.